The scripture text this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it towards the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Let's pray together. My gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors, just like you in raising up Pharaoh, the honors of your name. Father, these are some of the weightiest matters we will ever deal with as a church. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. Father, I long to be a faithful shepherd now and not get any biblical truth out of proportion or balance. I need your help that in affirming one biblical truth, we not affirm it in a way that would nullify another biblical truth. And so I ask you to come. I join your son, Father, in Matthew 11 and say, I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to babes, for such was your good pleasure. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom he chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Oh, Christ, help me to pull it together like that. 
Be our teacher now, I ask. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. How shall we know God? How shall we know what He's like and what are His ways? As I've posed myself that question recently, one thought comes crashing in on my brain with absolute certitude. Human opinion doesn't count for anything. What I feel about the way God should be is irrelevant. What you feel about the way God should be is irrelevant. If someone rises up and makes a pronouncement about what they can believe about God or what they can't believe about God, that is as significant in determining the truth about God as the creaking of a window in the wind. Our opinions are irrelevant when it comes to what God is like. Well, how then shall we know him? The answer, of course, is we will know him if and to the degree that he reveals himself to us to be known. He's done it mainly in his son, Jesus Christ. In many and various ways, men spoke of old by the prophets, but in these latter days, he has spoken to us by a son. Decisively, he speaks in and through Jesus. And then Jesus ordains and he sends the Holy Spirit that there be a band of apostles who write about him and preserve all that he said and what he showed of himself so that we have an accurate description of it in the letters and the gospels of the New Testament. And we find that as they do that, they go back over and over and over again and root what they say by inspiration and what God said to the prophets by inspiration. So you find as we walk through Romans 9 verses 4 and 5, he's talking about all these Old Testament realities of the covenants and the promises and the glory and the worship and the patriarchs. And when you get to verses 6 to 13, you find Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and Malachi. And when you get to verse 15, you find Exodus 33, 19. And when you get to verse 9, 17, you find Exodus 9, 16. In other words, the way God makes himself known is by sending Jesus into the world and then having him gather a group of authorized apostles saying, I'll send you the spirit. He will guide you into all truth. They write a New Testament and in that New Testament, they forge link after link after link with the big book at the beginning called the Old Testament so that we see God is of one Peace here. The God of the Exodus is the God of Romans 9. That's very crucial for this morning's message. So even though the text was read from Exodus, I ask you to put a finger there if you're using your Bible and go with me to Romans 9 also. We will come back to Exodus 9, but let's go to Romans 9 for a moment. For several moments. And let's read verses 17 and 18 of Romans 9, where Paul quotes Exodus 9:16. He's quoting that verse about the raising up 
and the preservation of Pharaoh. Verse 17 of Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name assist me to proclaim the honors of thy name, that thy name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then he draws this conclusion. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now you see what Paul is doing in verse 18. In the first half of verse 18, he's reaching back up to verses 15 and 16, where Paul had quoted Exodus 33:19, "I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion." And he's drawing out and preserving that. He has mercy on whom he wills. And then he's taking this reference to Pharaoh and the Exodus and what he learned there, and he's drawing out the hardening part and saying he hardens whomever he wills. Now, before we go back to see where Paul got this in the Exodus narrative, I want us to make sure that we see what he has said here in verse 18. There are at least seven reasons that I see more than seven, but I'll mention seven. Why we should understand that last phrase of verse 18, he hardens whom he wills, to mean God decides who will be rebellious and hard and thus deservingly perish. God decides that before they have done anything good or evil. And without regard to whether they have done anything good or evil. Now, before I show you these seven reasons why I think that's what it means, I want to give a caution so that you not take what I'm saying to nullify other things that Paul says. When he says that God hardens, whom he wills, he does so in a way that does not nullify the true guilt, true fault, true blame of those whom he hardens. They will deserve to perish. The hardening of God does not make fault Impossible, it makes fault certain. Now, there's a mystery here, which is why I say that the opinions of man don't count for very much here. People who are hardened by God are really guilty, really at fault, really blameworthy their consciences will really condemn them on the last day and justly will they perish. 
And if you ask, how? How can God do this? How can God render it certain that some will be hardened and rebel and disbelieve and perish justly and yet humans be accountable and blameworthy and have genuine fault and have consciences that truly and justly condemn them. If you ask, how can this be? There is not an answer given in this text. There are pointers and they will come in next week's message especially. But I'm not offering that explanation because a full explanation is not given in the Bible. I'm just saying what's here. God hardens whom he wills, and man is accountable. Hardening does not take away guilt. It renders guilt certain. Now, there are seven reasons for saying this. Saying, when God says he hardens whom he wills, he means he does that unconditionally. He does it in eternity. He does it before people are born or have done anything good or evil. Reason number one. I'm going to give you seven reasons quickly so that you may judge. They're all quite visible to you in the text. You don't have to have any special theological training to see these. First, this is the most natural meaning for the words, he hardens whomever he wills. The natural meaning of that phrase is, the will of God is decisive in whether a person is hard or not hard. To be sure, our wills rebel and harden themselves against the Lord. But the natural meaning of these words, he hardens whomever he wills. The natural meaning from those is that God's will is decisive beneath and behind my will. Second, the exact parallel with the first half of the verse and mercy shows that if mercy is unconditional, hardening is also unconditional. Verse 18 says, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. So if we believe that in showing us mercy, God does so freely and unconditionally, the parallel between the two verses would seem to require that He does the same with regard to hardening. Third, this is, in fact, exactly what Paul infers back in verses 15 and 16 from the words, he has mercy on whom he wills. Verse 15 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now, here comes the inference in verse 16. So then, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, if that's the inference that you draw from the statement, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, then you would certainly draw the same inference from he has hardening on whom he has hardening. Namely, it does not depend on man's willing. It does not depend on human running, but on God who hardens. That would be the parallel that you would draw naturally from verses 15 and 16. Fourth reason. The parallel of Jacob and Esau in verses 11 to 13 show that 
mercy and hardening are unconditional. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. In other words, the context here demands that Paul deal not only with the love-mercy side of God's freedom, but the hate-hardening side of God's freedom. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I have mercy on whom I have mercy, I harden whom I harden. Fifth, the objection to Paul's answer or Paul's statement given in verse 19, shows that Paul did not deal with the sovereignty of God the way we deal with it today when we try to defend God. You see the objection they raise in verse 19? You will say to me then, now what has he just said? He has just said he hardens whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. And they say, you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? That's our question. For who can resist his will? Answer, nobody. That's the lesson he drew from Pharaoh. Now, at this point, at this point, amazingly, Otherwise, thoughtful, reasonable, good commentators lose their senses and say the most unbelievable things. I'll read you one excerpt from a commentator that you would all recognize as a very good one. I quote from him often, and he writes on this verse, Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who has not first hardened himself. That Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to humble himself is made plain in the story. So God's hardening of him was a judicial act, abandoning him to his own stubbornness. Now let me say calmly and firmly, That's the opposite of what this text says. Can I say that calmly with no loss of control? That is the opposite of what this text says. That's frightening. When otherwise good commentators take a text and make it stand exactly on its head. Now here's my argument, my fifth argument. If Paul agreed with that, He's got a ready-made answer in verse 19. Help us, Paul. Why does he still find fault? Tell us the answer that the commentator has. He's got an answer. Why don't you have an answer? His answer is, it's a judicial act. He deserves to be hardened. He did something prior to the hardening that brought the hardening upon him. That's what the commentator says. You say that. Help us. The reason Paul doesn't say that is because it isn't the answer and it isn't true. Because he just said he hardens whom he wills, not he hardens who deserves to be hardened. We just can't 
Submit. And so Paul says in response to this question, a heartfelt, pointed question, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? He just shuts the room. So my fifth reason is that the answer Paul gives to the objection, why does he still find fault, is not the modern answer or the old one. It is bow down and accept the mystery. Sixth reason, verse 21 of Romans 9. This verse shows that mercy and hardening are unconditional because the objects of mercy and the objects of hardening come from the same lump of clay. There's a point in saying that. Let me read the verse. Has the potter no right over the clay? Has God no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Now, that's the crucial phrase. What's the point of saying to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonorable use. The stress here is this. It is not the nature of the clay that determines whether a vessel of honor or dishonor is made from it. That's the point. It's unconditional. He has a lump of clay. He can make one thing or make another thing. He can have mercy or he can harden whom he wills. The point is his wisdom and his sovereignty and his freedom over the lump of clay. He's the potter. He is wise. He knows what needs to be made in the universe to display the full range of his excellencies. Seventh reason, finally, in Romans 11, verse 7, Paul says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. The decisive thing in that verse that determines who inherits and who is hardened is election. Not willing or running on man's part. So the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. I have mercy on whom I will. And I harden whom I will. I make one vessel for honor. I make one vessel for dishonor. Out of the same lump. Now those are my seven reasons. If those don't persuade you. That I'm not making this up. But simply saying what's here then I don't know what else I can say. Let me say again now, before we look at the Old Testament, I have not removed the mystery. I have stated the mystery. This is clear. Sometimes those who hold a high view of the sovereignty of God are, are sometimes described as removing mystery, <laughs> trying to solve the unsolvable and remove the inscrutable and and uh, close up the unsearchable. Believe me, I am creating mysteries. I'm just describing mysteries. I'm not removing them here. And it is the same mystery 
as the origin of evil itself. How does a sinful disposition arise in a perfect creation? Overseen by a perfect God. How does an evil impulse arise? If you take the phrase free will and say, that's it. You don't solve a mystery, you name a mystery. You just give it a different name. Because what would ever prompt in a perfect world and creatures created perfectly in the image of God, what would ever prompt a ultimately self-determining creature to do such a thing? No answer. We have mystery, whatever name you put on it. So the question is, mark this, one name you can put on the mystery is ultimate human self-determination. And the other name you can put on the mystery is unconditional election and the free, sovereign God who has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. You can put those two names, free will or Sovereignty of God. The question is, which is biblical? Which did God reveal as the name of the mystery? And I'm making a case that Romans 9 is unmistakable in what it teaches. Now, where did Paul get this from Exodus. Now we're ready to go back. And if you still have your finger there in Exodus 9, let's go back. Here's my question. It looks like Paul in verse 18 is drawing this word about hardening. He hardens whom he wills from the quotation from Exodus 9:16. Where did he get it? Where did he find this hardening truth? In the Exodus narrative. Now you remember what's happening. These are basic Sunday school stories. Although I think most Sunday school curriculum totally avoids the point of the stories. What's happening is Moses and Aaron are being sent now to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. This is my command. Let my people go. And Pharaoh, as you know, refuses over and over and over again until there are ten plagues, not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or nine, but ten plagues, and then a sea-splitting miracle by which the people are freed forever from their bondage in Egypt and brought toward the promised land What's going on here? Why ten plagues? Why did it take ten? Just before Moses writes in Exodus 9.16 about God raising up Pharaoh to display his glory and, and his name, in verse 12 he gives the reason for why. It's drawn out the way it is. Exodus 9, 12. 
The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken. So God says, let my people go. And on the other side, he is ordaining that he not let the people go. Let them go, Pharaoh. And God is hardening him so that he will not let him go. He even calls this sin. He calls this sin. Pharaoh says, I have sinned. And Moses says, you have sinned. This is sin. God is ordaining that Pharaoh sin in hardening his heart and not letting the people go so that his wonders might be multiplied in the land and that his name might be proclaimed all the way to Rahab the prostitute in Jericho and to the Gibeonites who hear from a distance and trick Joshua into letting them be spared because they know this God. The key phrase in Romans 9.12 is, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. That is absolutely crucial for you to see. Do you see it? Exodus 9.12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. When had he said that? When did God say, I'm going to harden them and he won't listen to you? When did God say that? Well, he said it twice. He said it in 421 and 73. And why is that important? It is massively important because when he said it in chapter 4, verse 21, Moses wasn't even in Egypt yet. Let's go back there. Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Why is that important? It's important because over and over and over again, you'll read in commentaries and essays and in hearing conversations, God only began to harden him at the seventh plague after a long proof that he was going to sovereignly, self-determiningly harden himself. You hear that over and over again. It will not stand. Careful examination. Here you have God in chapter 4, verse 21, before Moses gets to Egypt, saying, when you get there, tell him to let the people go. I intend, my plan, my purpose is that he not let them go because I am going to harden him. Now, What becomes really clear is as you read the first demonstration with the snakes and then the first plague, the second plague, the third plague, this statement is coming true. Let me just read them for you. Before the first plague, Exodus 7, verse 13, 
Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. After the first plague, Exodus 7.22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Second plague, Exodus 8.15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And the Lord had not said he will harden his heart. The Lord had said, I will harden his heart. Therefore, when it says he hardened his heart, as the Lord said, it means Beneath and behind his own rebellion was the ordination of God that it happened. Or after the third plague, Exodus 8:19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I mean, the point here is clear. God says before Moses ever gets to Egypt, I will harden his heart. He will not listen to you. And then first plague, I told you so. Second plague, I told you so. Third plague, I told you so. Even though the language is of self-hardening and of being hardened. Therefore, the argument will not work to argue against the plain meaning of Romans 9 that God is watching to see what a self-determining human will do and then responding with his own contribution to the hardness. Why then did Paul not quote one of those hardening texts? Why did he quote chapter 9, verse 16, which doesn't even mention hardening? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Doesn't even mention hardening. And yet that's the inference that he draws. Here's my explanation. See if you think it works. Remember what is at stake in verses 14 to 18 of Romans 9. Is there then unrighteousness on God's part? Is he unjust? That's what Paul is trying to answer in verses 15 to 18. Is there then injustice on God's part when he loves Jacob and hates Esau? When he has mercy on one and hardens another Freely and unconditionally, is he then un unjust? And there's the first explanation in verse 15 and 16. And now comes a second explanation. And in Paul's mind, he's thinking, which verse will show that this action of God in relation to Pharaoh is a righteous action? You remember my definition of righteousness, which I dwelt on last week from Romans 3? God's righteousness is his unswerving commitment always to uphold the glory of his name. Now read. Now read his quotation. For. I'm still arguing for his righteousness. For. 
the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power and that my name. There it is. That's the key. My name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If the righteousness of God is God's unswerving commitment to uphold and display his name. Assist me to proclaim the honors of thy name. Then this text is the key text to use from the entire Exodus narrative to show that the freedom of God is righteous. What is his righteousness? His righteousness is his treasuring and displaying the infinite worth of his glory and his name, that is his sovereignty and his freedom. This is right. This is the meaning of right. If you ask, what is the meaning of right to God? What is right? Answer, that which displays most perfectly and fully the whole range of all of his glory and all of his excellencies, which is the fullness of his name. And at the very heart of it is his freedom. This is what it means to be God. So the sum of the matter is this. God is just in all his dealings. God is just in all his dealings. And the essence of his justice is the treasuring and the displaying and the upholding of his worth. The worth of his glory. The worth of his name. He's just in all that he does. Now let me close like this. Do you remember from last week the central act in history by which God upheld his glory and displayed his righteousness and vindicated his honor? It was the cross. He put Jesus Christ forward as a demonstration of his righteousness. This, I say, was to demonstrate his righteousness because he had passed over our sins and looked as though he did not treasure and did not uphold the worth of his glory which we had trampled on the ground. And it was the cross Jesus Christ, God incarnate, penetrating the world to show that at the center of his freedom is a freedom to save and a freedom to rescue and a freedom to propitiate his wrath and vindicate his righteousness and justify the ungodly. And so I close the same place I did last week. Don't let any sinfulness in your life downtown. Or here, don't let any sense or feeling of unworthiness stop you or keep you away or make you flee away from him. Remember, the cross stands at the center of history to say, I am willing, come, 
Everyone who comes, I will save. Everyone who humbles himself, bows before the mystery, receives the grace that is in Christ Jesus, I will forgive him because I am free. And no amount of guilt and no amount of sinning will stop God from flowing forth with grace towards all who believe. And when you have believed, remember, it was a gift. It was a gift. And lest you think that should paralyze you as you sit in your seat downtown or here, lest you think that should paralyze you, it doesn't paralyze. It points you toward how to pray. Are you sitting there as an unbeliever? Are you sitting there unable to get over the barrier of the foolishness of the cross or the mystery of sovereignty? Are you sitting there saying, I can't, I just can't. What are you going to do? This text says, pray. Grant me to believe. Oh God, come and help me believe. Get me over all my obstacles. Take away all my blinders. Remove everything that holds me back from faith. That's what the sovereignty of God enables you to do and frees you to do right now. Let's stand together. Almighty God now, gracious Master and our God, assist us to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the wonders, the honors of your Sovereign, free, holy, merciful, hardening, mysterious name. Through Christ I pray.